This is the official Sasta podcast with your host, Harry Stebbings, found sharing mojitos on Snapchat at H Stebbings. As for the main man, Mr. Jason Lemkin, you can find him on Snapchat at J Lemkin. And this is your final chance. If you'd like to see more than Snapchat stories of me and Jason drinking mojitos at Sasta, then all you have to do is enter the promo code drinks with Harry, those three words, drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets. And you'll not only get 20% off the ticket price, but you'll also get an invite to the hottest party in town. Oh yes, the mojito masterclass. Also, if you did not manage to listen to Monday's episode with TN, you would not have heard the news that I will be running the London Marathon with Fred Desta, GP at Excel, and we are running for MS UK, a charity very close to my heart, having seen my mother suffer from multiple sclerosis for the last eight years. We also would so appreciate your support, and I've added the fundraising page links to the show notes. That would mean the world to me. However, to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome JD Peterson. Now, JD is CMO of Trello, where he heads the company's marketing and customer service teams. A true child of Silicon Valley, JD has been helping startups for nearly 20 years. Before Trello, he held positions as the CRO and interim CEO at Scripted, the VP of Marketing at Zendesk, and the VP of Products at Marketo. JD takes pride in building world-class teams, helping companies accelerate growth, and ensuring the customer remains at the centre of every strategic effort. However, before we dive into the show today, if you do make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then you'll see the incredible Algolia team in person. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers, and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SASTA podcast. However, it's now time for me to shut up, and I'm delighted to hand over to JD Peterson, CMO at Trello. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. JD, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Firstly, a huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, JD. Thank you. Yeah, really excited to be here. I'd love to get started today, but with a bit about you, and I want to start with your slightly unconventional entrance into the world of SAS. So talk to me about that and how you made your way into the wonderful world of SAS. Well, I love talking about myself, so great. Let's start there. Yeah, <laughs> not, not really, actually, but uh, no, I, I think I, I do have a sort of a unique background, I think, compared to a lot of my peers in, in the industry in that I'm not an engineer by trade, really nothing technical in my background didn't go get a fancy MBA from Stanford or any of those places. I really kind of worked my way up, I like to say, very much from kind of the the, the bottom of the stack, if you will, but give you a little bit of the background. So I grew up in Silicon Valley, like literally the Silicon Valley, the Santa Clara Valley in in, in the south part of the San Francisco Bay Area. But tech was like my dad's thing and and not really what I was interested in. And went away to college, was a pure liberal liberal arts guy, uh, no interest really or no thought that I would ever work in a tech company. But eventually, I moved back home after college and like most people, I needed money and really the companies that were hiring at the time in that area, much like today, were all tech companies. So I took first a contract job actually working on an HR team at a a little company called Pure Software. Now, what's interesting about Pure Software 
software is that the CEO and founder of Pure is actually Reed Hastings, who went on to found Netflix. Quite a uh, famous guy now. Quite a famous guy, yeah. And really, the and this was sort of his first successful startup. And really, the kind of core team he had there is full of all sorts of people who have gone on to really interesting things, including the person I was kind of contracting with and working in HR was Patty McCord, who very famously put together the Netflix culture deck that's become you know an extremely popular and uh, you know well-respected thing, uh, talking about company culture and that sort of stuff. So really, just kind of working with those folks and experiencing the culture there really showed me and demonstrated to me that working in a tech company could be a pretty awesome thing and uh, and something that I wanted to do, both from just seeing the kind of people that were there, the kind of challenging problems they were tackling. And even in my little contract HR job, this was back in the 90s, right? In kind of the early days of the internet. And I was like, one of my tasks was putting our job postings on the website, which was like a brand new thing back then. And all these types of things just really got me fired up. So I said, okay, I'm going to give this a run and, and see if I can find some other you know interesting work in this area. So then the first full-time job I got in, in tech at kind of the next company I went to is I took a customer service job at a little company that was Hotmail. So the original free email uh, provider back in the day. And in my opinion, really the web's first killer app. So the kind of the first thing that wasn't just a website, but was actually an application that people could really use. Um, so I did customer service there. Like literally a couple weeks into the job, I got promoted into a manager role of that customer service team. And, and literally I've been managing people and managing teams and tech companies and startups ever since. So did that for a little bit. We got acquired by Microsoft, of course, in a successful acquisition back then. A lot of my coworkers became quite wealthy. I, I think I was a little too far down on the stack to have that happen. Um, but, but certainly got the bug of the startup thing then. I did hang around Microsoft a little while and really kind of entered into what I'd call my sponge years, where I just really wanted to learn as much as I could about technology. I actually even spent a little time when I was at Microsoft in a QA department, trying to at least hone my technical chops a little bit. Um, so wanted to learn about technology, wanted to really learn how these businesses operate. And so did that for a little while and then went to a myriad of startups uh, after that. And this was kind of the original tech bubble. So kind of, you know, hung on at a few places and didn't really have great success at a, at a company level for a while. But like I said, I was really a sponge in those years and just trying to learn as much as possible and meet interesting people and, and really just learn different functions of the business. This kind of led to me ultimately becoming a product manager at one of these startups. And for kind of the bulk of my career, that's really where I spent my time. And I think that for me, other than maybe maybe a sales job, I would say product management is probably the best training ground for a future executive. Um, or it just teaches you so much in so many different aspects of the business. And I was very fortunate to kind of go into that as my career. So did that for a while. And then, you know, kind of maybe jumping ahead to a few of the big highlights, eventually kind of kept doing the management thing from, from the product perspective and was really fortunate to land in the early days at Marketo. I was a vice president of products there in the, in the pretty early pre-IPO days at Marketo. Um, and that was an amazing experience. Did that for a little while, left there probably a little prematurely and left there before the IPO um, for a combination of some personal reasons, as well as I kind of realized then that I probably always should have been in marketing. And then marketing is really where my heart was. I think working at Marketo and seeing the impact we were having on marketers around the world and kind of seeing how they operate really got me excited about kind of modern marketing. So I jumped off that rocket ship, but fortunately was able to step onto another rocket ship. And I took a VP of marketing job at Zendesk. <laughs> yeah, so so pretty fortunate to kind of bounce from one uh, you know up and coming eventual unicorn to another. Um, and that, that was an amazing experience. And I think I was employee somewhere around number six 
60 there. And when I got there, we were doing about 10 or 12 million in annual recurring revenue. And by the time I left Zendesk, we were over 800 employees, over 100 million public. And I had been able to really touch just about every part of marketing in my time there. So pretty amazing journey there. And now, uh, most recently, I'm, I'm at Trello, uh, where I'm the chief marketing officer at Trello. And hoping to replicate some of the successes of some of those other companies and, and feeling like we're well on our way. Now, JD, talk to me. As, as someone who likes to pick companies, for me, for investments, uh, you've picked some incredible winners there. So I'm intrigued to hear, firstly, what your selection process looks like when JD starts to look around at potential new jobs. What are the characteristics and fundamentals that attract you to companies like Marketo pre-IPO, Zendesk in the early days? What is it that really enticed you? You know, when I give my best background? That's the question everybody wants to ask. <laughs> so yeah, and I wish I knew, I wish I knew some of this way back when. I would say my process has definitely changed. I think back in the earlier days, it was much more about luck and kind of wherever I could find somebody who would take me. <laughs> now as I'm looking and, you know, certainly going through the experience that led to Trello, there definitely are a few things that I look for. One is kind of big stuff, I'll call it. So I'm looking for a company that's in a big market and has a big vision for how to how they're going to go after that market and what the world's going to look like when they win in that market. And then there's got to be big passion involved. And it definitely has to be something that I can get really passionate about. So thinking about a company like Marketo, for example, definitely we were going after a big market. I mean, we saw that, you know, literally every B2B company in the world needed a better way to communicate with and track their their leads and and, and their customers and that sort of thing. Um, they had a big vision for it as well. You know, I can still hear Phil Fernandez, the, the founder and CEO of, of Marketo and my boss at the time, I can still hear him in my ears talking about, hey, we're changing the way that people do marketing and we're changing the perception of marketing. We're giving you know marketers a seat at the revenue table for the first time. You know, we're gonna up the, the stature of a marketer and a company and, and those types of things. So there was always kind of this really big vision to go along with a big target market. And it's ultimately it's gotta be something I can get really, really passionate about. Um, especially as a marketer, I'm well past the days of, of being able to bullshit people or kind of <laughs> fake my way through, uh, you know, through marketing and telling stories. It's got to be something that really resonates with me. So that's kind of the first thing, big market, big vision for going after it. And, you know, big passion around that. Um, the second is, and especially in this SaaS game, right? It's got to be a great product. And for me, the way that I sort of determine a great product, first, I just really look at, is it solving a real problem? Um, some, you know, is this a real problem that exists that they're, they're providing a solution for? Or is it, maybe if it's not necessarily a problem solution thing, is it improving or changing you know, work or life in some fundamental way? Then the really the best way to kind of validate the great product thing to me is, do customers love it? You know, can they live without it? Like, are they dying to talk? about it, that sort of thing. I think about Trello when I, when I was first talking, you know, to Trello about joining, I would go just ask people in my network or even people in my personal life, like, Hey, you ever heard of this Trello thing? And amazingly, it wasn't generally like, yeah, I've heard of it. It was like, Oh my God, I love it. It changed my life. Like I do everything on Trello, like that type of stuff. So really seeing that customer validation of, is this product truly a great product? Um, is definitely something I think about. Third is the stage that the company's in. And this is definitely something I've had to learn through, you know, mishaps and, and, and successes. And, and I think when it comes to stage, it's about you really understanding your sweet spot and, and what stage in a company makes most sense for you. Some people are really good at the very, very early days, kind of, you know, just coming out of the garage and trying to figure out if this, you know, what the, what, what the right market fit for a product is and kind of in that invention mode. You know, other people are much more comfortable at a company that has a lot of resources and is a little further 
further along, those types of things. I've really found that my sweet spot is in between those. It's kind of at that place where a company's figured out, yeah, we've got some product market fit here. Now we got to figure out how to pour gas on it and really scale and accelerate. And so I think once you can understand your sweet spot, then identifying companies that, that fall into that are really important. And then fourth, but probably most important, and the last I'll talk about is is just people, right? It, ultimately, this is a people thing and team and culture. And you know, when you're when you're looking at companies, the ability to pick your boss, right? How often do you get to do that? Well, when you when you're first joining a company, you really do, right? Because you're getting to pick the person you're going to work for. And so I think people, culture, you know, those things ultimately is the is the other thing I'm looking for. Are, are these the kind of people I want to work with? Are these the kind of people that I think can win? And I'm really pleased you said there about culture and scaling culture as you go into hyper growth mode. So having seen that at Zendesk and Marketo and now Trello. How do you evaluate culture, culture creation, and then culture maintenance as you scale into this hyper growth mode? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's probably a few different things that I look at. Uh, one is, you know, I talked earlier about big vision. One is, are the employees bought into that? And can they can they describe that vision too, or is that only you know is that only the CEO and founder that's really got that vision and can articulate it well? But I think a great culture is one where the employees are very much bought into that. You know, they they very much believe in that vision, and they themselves can articulate it. Can you, now, one t- thing can I, you test that? I think the way to test that is, is is in many ways just to ask them, right? I mean, even even something as basic as you know having people that work there give you the elevator pitch, I think can tell you a lot. It's just just seeing, you know, you'll you'll see quickly like are these people kind of, you know, faking it and fumbling around and, you know, they're just kind of there for a job or, you know, they're building this thing, but they're not really sure what it's for. Or, or, you know, you'll get that in the way that they message and the way they talk about the company. So I think a lot of times just talking to people that work there and kind of seeing how they talk about, uh, you know, the company or the product or where they're going and their mission, that sort of thing. Um, other stuff is certainly work style and meetings. That has to be a fit as well. You know, is this a company that everybody's in the office? Is it a remote culture? I mean, just these different things. And again, understanding your sweet spot and what works for you and making sure, you know, that that company, the way they work, the style that they work aligns, you know, with the way you do it, I think is really important. Values, you know, obviously company values and much more than just the, you know, the poster they might stick on the wall, although if they have that, that's important certainly to talk about. But for me, it's more things like transparency. Like, is this a company where the, and that's a big one for me. I like to work at places that are very open and where most of the employees or all the employees, you know, know where we stand on our revenue, how we're doing against our goals, what the product roadmap is, these types of things. I think you can dig into that with people in an interview process or poking around as well. But I want to work, I want to work at somewhere that's very open and kind of has that, that true value of transparency. Another huge one for me is empowerment. I believe the most successful companies and the most successful situations I've been in personally are ones where I feel very empowered to own my job, own the things in front of me, make decisions. And especially, again, once you start getting to a, a management or an executive level, I think that's a really important one. You know, For me, joining a place like Trello, right? I, I wanted to see, look, am I going to be trusted to be able to make decisions? Am I going to you know, really own the stuff that's mine and, and you know, be able to execute and that sort of thing? I very much felt that. So I think empowerment another big one for me. I'm super intrigued. Before we dive into kind of data and its role with marketing today, I, you said about goals there, and it's always an interesting one for me in terms of the success of a potential marketing. And it's, is revenue the only way to really determine success in marketing and kind of effect on bottom line? Or is there brand awareness, culture improvements that you think are also important? Is there this tangible metric of success? 
I'm a big believe, I'm a big fan of NPS um, as well. So, I, so first, I do think revenue is front and center, and I do think marketing, especially today, maybe more than ever, contributes directly to revenue. And I think that much more than counting up leads or or that sort of thing, I do think revenue and you know and, and is ultimately massively important to the way you judge a marketing effort. Um, but I'm a big believer in things like NPS as well, and to trying to align marketing's efforts around making happy customers and making net promoters out of our customers and making sure that our customers are, are getting, you know, educated and engaged, uh, you know, the right ways with our company and our brand so that they go tell other people about it, right? Kind of the spirit of the whole NPS thing. So I think that to, we like to think of our, our marketing is really, we're touching a customer on their entire journey from the first moment that they become aware of our brand all the way through being a, a successful customer and ultimately a net promoter and that kind of thing and being retained and, and, you know, hopefully expanding and all, all the other things that go with it. So are we not um, seeing the integration of full sales and marketing with that life cycle? I think we are in many cases. I mean, I think the, the emergence of chief revenue officers, which you see in a lot of places that are kind of owning the marketing and sales stack, I think is becoming more and more common. I think even in places where you don't have that, like our situation, I think marketing and sales alignment is critical. And I think that sales and marketing really feeling like much more of one team is almost mandatory you know, nowadays. And I think there certainly are some separations of duties kind of within you know, the whole the funnel, you know, if you will. Um, but I think it's it's ultra important that those those groups stay really really aligned and understand that they're all you know we're all working together towards the same goal, which is revenue and happy customers. Absolutely, and kind of one way that they have correlated together in recent years is with the rise of data. You know, now marketing has seen the rise of data, so I would love to start with that element and say because before I've heard you say it's the best, but it's the hardest time to be a marketer. So why do you think this is, and kind of what's the thesis driving that? Uh, theory on the difficulties of marketing today. Yeah, don't you love when people say something that's the best and the worst? <laughs> um, so yeah, no, you know what? You, you sound like my girlfriend. Fucking confusing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've got no idea. So please explain, JD. <laughs> yeah, just here to confuse people. No, I think I think marketing. I think it is the best time to be in marketing. And I think many of the reasons are the tools and technology that's available today is is just it's crazy in, in a good way. And I think that you know the marketing space has been extremely heavily invested in, as you know, over the past few years and really marketing outside of maybe engineering is probably on the most cutting edge in terms of like the, the newest tools available, the newest, you know, really breakthroughs in, in technology and the way you can surface data and, and that sort of thing. I think that as you know, kind of touched on earlier, I also think marketing today, you know, has a bigger seat at the executive table is much more directly tied to revenue. I love the stat that, you know, and you hear various numbers, but roughly about 75% of a buyer's journey is done before they talk to sales, right? And I think marketing can have a massive influence and does have a massive influence on that, kind of like we talked about throughout the whole customer journey, you know, marketing's there to, to make an impact and to influence. And I think just all those things combined make marketing just super powerful and just a super great place. And it's what inspired me originally when I made that change from Marketo to Zendesk and really from a product career into a marketing career was that just this the time we're in it's really the blend of the art and science side is what really has me super excited about marketing you know it's not so it's not it? just the padman days of just being you know super creative which i think is still really important but there's also this 
technology, science, data side as well. So with the proliferation of tools that give you kind of easily trackable analytics, why is it harder than ever then? I'm confused. Yeah, I think I think it's harder for a few different reasons. Um, one, in, in general, and I think especially in SaaS, is that competition is, is tougher than it's ever been. It's much easier nowadays for somebody to spin up a competitive product than it ever was before. And I think that you know, there's some, there's a 24 year old out there right now sitting, you know, on a college campus or in his bedroom at night, creating the tool that's going to kick your ass, you know, in, in, <laughs> down the road, right? I mean, like it's, it's just easier and easier for people to create products and to put out SaaS tools. And so I think competition's tougher than ever. I think there's also just so much noise and cutting through that noise, cutting through all the content and all the information that we're all just seeing and overwhelmed with on a daily basis, cutting through that and really standing out is harder than ever. It's also, I mean, it's one of those where it's also part of the reason it's the, it's the best job is because when you do, you know, there's few things more fulfilling, um, but it's just harder than ever to cut through that. And then I think the, the last thing I would add, and then we can get maybe even more into the data piece, but I think the other tough thing is that everybody, because marketing's become more sort of transparent and open and accessible, everybody thinks they're a marketer, right? Right? And there's much more competition to get into it. And there's even technical people, right, with engineering backgrounds getting into marketing now. So I think it's a much more competitive field as well, which ultimately leads to better results. Um, on the data thing, too, I think data, you know, you, you mentioned that. And I think being more data-driven in marketing has been awesome in that it's given us the ability, you know, really for the first time in history to be able to test our stuff on real audiences, really eliminate a lot of the guesswork, tie marketing efforts directly to the bottom line, bring new people, like I was just mentioning, into the profession. I think there have been some negatives with it as well. And I think some of those are, I see a lot of marketing departments and a lot of marketing people out there starting to really do what I would call paint-by-numbers marketing. And really just, it's almost becoming too formulaic. And I think some people have forgotten that it is that blend of the art and science. And I think if you swing the pendulum too far on the science side, you know, you oftentimes forget that, that you're dealing with human beings and there's an emotional side to things as well. And I think it can be too easy just to fall into only looking at kind of the historical patterns and only kind of following the numbers. I think you can sometimes lose sight of what really ultimately connects a brand to, to, to human to humans. And a lot of that's the emotional connection. I also think too, that just people, it's easy to make the mistakes of it's great to measure and we all need to measure everything we do. But oftentimes I see people making the mistakes of measuring the wrong thing. And I think one of the things we're really lacking in, in the industry, frankly, is there's a lot of people who are, are really great at collecting the analytics and collecting the data and surfacing that. But true, truly great analysts I don't think we have enough of those yet. People who can really look at the data and come to the right conclusions from it and really take data and know kind of what to do with it. I think there's a lot of wrong signals out there. Is that, um, is that why we're seeing the rise of data scientists? I think so. And I think, and I think in specifically even in a field like marketing, bringing that more into it. I think even, you know, I think the field in general and then applying it to things like sales and marketing and some of the less technical, you know, kind of front of the business uh, departments, I think is, is exactly why we're seeing that. And I think we need, that discipline to come in because I think there's been so many tools, you know, from Google Analytics and on forward that have surfaced all this data for marketers, but your guy building the email campaigns or, you know, whatever may not be the best person to really analyze and make sense of that data. And so I think a lot of mistakes are often made. Okay, JD, we're going to dive into one of my favorites, and it's the quick fire round called 60 Seconds Faster. So are you ready for Rapid that? Rapid fire. All right. Let's Rapid do it. fire. 60 seconds per one. Ready to roll? 
Let's do it. Is SaaS marketing B2B or B2C? Oh, good question. Um, I think it's, I, I'm going to go 80% B2B and 20% B2C. I mean, I think when we think of SaaS, software as a service products, it's, we're generally talking about business products and business things. And so I think first and foremost, especially from marketing perspective, I think it is B2B. But I think the companies who are ultimately winning and succeeding also have a little bit of that B2C DNA uh, within their marketing efforts and within their marketing team. So I'll go with like an 80-20, a little more lean on B2B, but you got to use some of that inspiration from the B2C world. To, to my last point, right, you're dealing with human beings, and we, we gotta, uh, there's a lot we can learn from B2C. What's your fave SaaS reading material? Um, I would say, I mean, not to not to kiss the butts of the, the people who brought me here or whatever, but I'm definitely a Saster fan, and, and every, <laughs> every, everything Jason and the guys with Saster, you know, every, everything there, I'm definitely a big, big, big follower of. Tomash Tungus from Redpoint, definitely a religious reader of his blog posts, uh, which I think are pretty amazing on kind of covering the SaaS world. And then I'm just very active on Twitter in terms of following lots of interesting VCs, entrepreneurs, fellow marketers, other executives, that kind of thing. And then a lot of the other companies in our space, I try to follow their blogs uh, as well, especially a lot of the companies who are, who are very transparent with, you know, kind of talking about their operations, that sort of thing. And then what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Um, well, I guess based on my Hotmail story earlier, I'll say I wish I knew how to better negotiate stock options back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would say beyond that, which is a true one, but uh, beyond that, I would say probably how important mentors and networking can be. I, I think it took me for a while to really, uh, really understand the importance of having some key mentors in my life that outside of my current bosses and things like that, that I can rely on, get advice from kind of turned to when I needed it. So I think if I had to do it all over, really working on strengthening my network and identifying some good mentors earlier on would have been a huge boom. And then final quick fire, uh, and it's biggest mistake companies are enacting with their current marketing plans. Biggest mistake. I'll cheat a little and I'll give you two. First is they're building their marketing plans without a good understanding of CAC and LTV. So not a good understanding of really what their costs are. And then ultimately, is that going to work because of the lifetime value? a new customer is going to bring us. So really understanding those numbers and those ratios, I think is huge. I'll throw a second one in that's near and dear to my heart too. Of I think a lot of people overlook the install base. They think marketing sort of begins at awareness and ends at qualified lead. When I think today, in fact, oftentimes even much more the importance in marketing is, is sort of after that initial sale, especially in the world of SaaS, where you know, the SaaS model really only thrives when you got retention and, and ultimately upsells and expansion and word of mouth. And I think all those things, you need to have a good install base or customer marketing plan as well. JD, I'm too excited. Before we dive into the final question of, of the interview, I do want to ask, you said about the cat to LTV ratio, uh, and we often hear different answers to this. What do you think is the optimal? Is it the three to one that's often cited? I mean, that's the number, that's sort of the baseline that, that I've, I've, you know, certainly learned about as well. And, and, and tend to sort of, uh, you know, try to get to. I think it depends on your business, though. I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of if and depends, you know, in this sort of answer. I think generally that's a good starting point, right? I mean, you obviously need it to be positive. You, you definitely want it to be above two. There are certain businesses, though, where even three may not be enough. So I, I think it just depends on your business and really getting in and understanding your model. But three is certainly a great starting point. Mm-hmm. And then I want to finish today on the, on the topic of scaling. You've been at many scaling companies for sure. Uh, so when all is going well and we're looking to expand the team, I want to hear your thoughts on when is the right time to hire and what roles should be the first to be filled? 
build. Yeah, so I'm I'm generally sort of a believer, especially in scale mode of, of kind of ABH, always be hiring. Uh, I think that's, by the way, absolutely 100% truth when it comes to salespeople and engineers, maybe not quite as much in marketing, but I always want to at least be in that hiring mindset and always sort of be opportunistically looking uh, for how we can add value to the team. Um, but when you're kind of starting out or you're starting, you know, starting out, I'll, I'll kind of focus it on marketing here, um, kind of my, my primary domain. I think in the early days and as you're entering into scale, you want to optimize for athletes, as I say. So people who are very versatile, very well-rounded, high intelligence, high passion, and have some technical skills, really the kind of people that you could put on multiple different kinds of tasks. And they they don't need to specialize in one particular area. They can go deep uh, if you need them to, but chances are your strategy is going to shift. Your needs are going to change pretty regularly. And you need that kind of person that can go with the flow and kind of adapt to a lot of different types of things. Um, so is that, you is, that, is that a young recent college grad or is that a seasoned Salesforce pro? Um, it can it can definitely be a, a pretty young and recent college grad, um, provided they have really a strong aptitude and ability to learn and learn fast. I think it definitely can. And I've definitely I've personally had some success with that. I think if I was like painting the ideal picture, I might some have, I, I'd probably prefer someone who's at least uh, you know done one or two companies. You know, just to have a little bit of experience kind of in the work world first, and maybe their hands on a couple of the tools uh, that, that we need. But but yeah, it definitely can be somebody younger. Absolutely, and then in terms. In terms of um, when you transition from a generalist to a specialist, is there a kind of thesis that you've seen when it gets to 30, 60, 90, when, when everything really starts to change and professionalize into the kind of inside sales, the outbound marketing, when everything turns more specialized? Yeah, I don't know if there's a magic uh, answer. Again, it probably depends at each company. I think somewhere around when a, when a company gets in, the, in that 100-person range, I think is generally when, especially in a, in a department like marketing, things start to need a little more specialization. Um, so, you know, if, if I was, you know, kind of making up a number, a size number or whatever, I'd say it's probably around there. But again, I guess it just, it, it ultimately depends on what kinds of customers you're going after, what your, what your sort of sales and, you know, and, and revenue funnel looks like. You know, in terms of how specialized you get, you're going to get. But yeah, generally around that point. So when's the transition point to needing a VP? When is the the VP required? Yeah, I think again, I don't know if there's a magic number. Certainly, I, I don't believe. You know, I'll take marketing again as an example. I think within a marketing department, if you're less than ten people, you're you're probably crazy to hire a VP. I think once you get over that ten mark, you might. I think the real things to look are look for is when hiring is starting to become a full time thing when you're growing and scaling and there's sort of always open recs and always the need to be hiring. I think that's one definite good signal. The other I would say is when your marketing strategy is an issue, either you need one because <laughs> you've kind of been operating without one or it's changing too often, or you just don't really have a good grip on exactly what it is. I think so. I think when strategy starts to become kind of a clear problem in the company um, and, or you're, and or you're in that kind of full-time hiring mode, those are probably the best two signals. JD, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I heard such great things from Jason, but I'm so thrilled that you that you managed to come on the show, and it was fantastic to hear your story. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, glad I could share it. Hope we didn't put too many people asleep, and uh, to love you know doing this. And uh, anytime you guys need it, I'm here. 
Such a fantastic chat that was with JD and such a pleasure to have him on the show today. And remember, if you do not have your tickets for Sasta Annual yet, then head over to sasta.com and purchase them with the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY. Those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, and you'll get 20% off the ticket price and free mojitos. What a deal that is. And as I said earlier, you can find the links for Fred Destin and I's Marathon Run fundraise page in the description below this episode. And we really would so appreciate your support. And as we said earlier, we'd absolutely love to see you at Sasta Annual this year. And if you do do decide to make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then as we said, you'll get to see the incredible Algolia team and product in person. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management, and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers, and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SaaS to podcast. As always, we so appreciate all your support, and we cannot wait to bring you next week's episodes.